Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 361, a part one of my conversation with the coordinator of percussion studies at the University of North Texas, longtime educator, performer, and composer, Mark Ford. We'll get back to him shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou. Last Thursday was our first game of the season, which Mizzou's football team won, and it came upon us quickly. We had to cancel outside rehearsals for much of the previous week due to extreme heat, which finally led up over the weekend. However, we essentially had to learn our entire show drill in two days. But you know what? Band students are amazing, and they made it happen. We felt it was a very well-performed show, and feel proud of the students who dealt with very challenging circumstances and really came together quickly to do so. And we'll have performances pretty much every weekend for the next two months, so stay tuned. But now, let's turn our attention to this week's guest, Mark Ford. I have certainly been aware of Mark Ford for a long time, though this is the first time he and I have had a real chance to chat. The podcast interview will open with a discussion of us maybe meeting at some previous PASIC, which I think will sound familiar to you, who attend that conference. But my knowledge of Mark goes back to me being a grad student at UNCG performing Head Talk, which we'll talk about here, along with the program that he built with Christopher Dean at East Carolina University in the 1980s and 90s. Mark's been very active in the percussion world for quite a while. He's been teaching at the college level for many decades and has been coordinator of the North Texas program for over 20 years. He's been president of PAS and on the exec board and has been a published composer of many works over the years, some of which, like Head Talk or Stubernick or many others, are very well known and have likely been performed by those of you listening to this podcast over your years of study. Mark's career covers so much that we split this interview up into two parts. So today on part one, you'll hear about the program at UNT and the challenges specific to that job, making composition a regular part of his life, his years as Percussive Arts Society president, and growing up in Virginia. Next week in part two, you'll hear the rest. So let's do it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on August 7th, 2023, and it begins right now. You and I, I think, met very brief. I mean, it was one of those like PASIC meetups where it's like, I think we talked to each other for about 25 seconds. I think that's as much time as um, as I've talked to you, which, yeah, anyway. Well, that's the classic PASIC shuffle, you know, the yes. 25 to 45 second. Hey, man, what's up? Okay, yeah. Cool. yeah. And then there's the, oh, like you do start doing the, oh, wait, I have to find this person. (laughs) (laughs) That's all good. I remember, I think I remember that because I was reading, uh, you know, your bio a little bit and just trying to look at your other uh, podcasts. And I started to remember that we had met briefly, but I didn't recall why, you know, I couldn't remember exactly where, you know. But it, yeah, it was it was it was in the expo hall. That's as much as I got. <laughs> well, what's important <laughs> is nothing. What's important is now. So this is yeah, great. yeah very good. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, Mark, give me a summation of your current percussion responsibilities as they are right now. 
My percussion responsibilities. Um, you know, working at a, a school like University of North Texas, I'm going into my 25th year as the coordinator of percussion there. And it's multifaceted, Pete. It's it's really, um, would love to tell you that each year is kind of like the last year and not, but it just is never that way. Um, I'm surrounded by a fantastic um, team of wonderful teachers and dear friends and uh, and creative people. Wow, super creative people. So, you know, we have a tendency to try to run with the moment and see where the energy is going to be. And also outside of the percussion area at North Texas, there's people like in the jazz divisions or the wind studies divisions that will host a huge event that affects us. For example, last spring, we had um, guest artists that came in with the Wind Symphony, Evelyn Glennie, that, and she was on campus for 10 days. So obviously that changed how we might work and during that time period. So my responsibilities really is to create an environment for my team, uh, my, my colleagues, to be able to be themselves, to be the artistic uh, uh, individuals that they are, to be the wonderful teachers that they are, and hopefully not to have uh, things that are mundane that get in the way of doing their job. As a coordinator, I have a 25% administrative load, but I don't know how it really works in terms of percentages, but that's what they say. So long story short is that I'm teaching lessons, I'm teaching steel band still, I'm not teaching the percussion ensemble for the first time in my career, mainly because Dave Hall just uh, joined the faculty and that was his forte. And I had done it for 42 years. I'm like, okay, why don't you go and do it? And uh, it doesn't mean I won't ever um, instruct a percussion ensemble again. Just I haven't done it in the last two or three semesters. Getting the job at UNT, um, and where you were before then, and how this opportunity kind of presented itself to you to come to UNT. You know, um, Bob Chitroma, who was the percussion coordinator before me, he decided to retire in the spring of 1999. Um, now, I had been a student of his at North Texas. I did my master's, master's there. But that's not why I got the job. I don't think that was, I mean, I'm sure that played into it a little bit, but that's not the reason why. I feel the the reason that brought me to that school were my things that I was doing creatively with my students and also with my own music. You know, we tend to, I used to think, Pete, that I would work super hard and do the very best thing that I could do. And then someone would come along and pat me on the back and say, hey, now here's your job. You know, and it just that never happened that way. And so I think to answer your question, again, it's multifaceted because I was a composer. I was writing music that was getting played um, pretty regularly. I was also heavily involved with Percussive Arts Society. So I was networking uh, at that time and meeting so many fantastic people. And, you know, and also the North Texas community, the North Texas um, family is vast. It's just, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of percussionists over the years. And um, so you get to know these people, especially the ones that are involved making music or teaching or in manufacturing or whatever, you know, you get to know them really well. So I think when this job opened up, I think they were looking like who's positioned well to be able to bring this program to um, maybe, in, you know, build on the, build on the foundation, you know. 
I obviously was one of the ones they wanted to interview, and I was thankful for that very much. And um, it's been a roller coaster ride. I, all I can tell you is that it's been um, it's an unusual job just because of the the scope of the school, how large the school is. Really, I would love to tell you I loved every minute. I don't think I've loved every minute, but I've loved most of the minutes, which is I'm thankful for that. For anybody listening and they're looking to audition. Uh, for something or they want to move to a new position, you have to look inward and de decide on, you know, what would be attractive about my candidacy for any job. Your availability to be involved in many different projects helps you to be more uh, versatile. And, um, you know, and, good and, and I'm sorry, and Mark, and Mark you're, you're referring to what is a committee, you're thinking like on the committee, like, what what are they what would make them say, this is a person we want to hire, right? Exactly. That's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. And um, so they're looking for diversity. They're looking for versatility. I think they're looking for uh, people that can be team players. They don't want to be upset easily or emotional easily. Or, you know, you can roll with the punches and find the solution in a positive, progressive way. And uh, that's that's the key to working with people. As you know, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're going to walk in and play a um, a Broadway musical or if you're going to play in the local orchestra or whatever. Nobody wants to work with a jerk. You know, they want to be with somebody that's going to make them sound good, I think. And so, you know, that's that's part of the beauty of playing music, too. I, I think that's natural for us, for those of us like yourself that are successful in the field and we're trying to make our make make our lives more enjoyable and, and better for it. The situation at North Texas is different because of the size. Of, and I'm talking about the percussions. I mean, obviously the school, but also the percussion is just massive. And so when you first take over the position, what's something that immediately like nearly overwhelmed you? We'll put it that way. <laughs> There's so many things, Pete. I mean, we this podcast is not going to be that long. I can't tell you. <laughs> I mean, you know, because I had taught at that point, let's see, 16, 17 years. And with I felt with success, my students were doing well. They were finding jobs and work and teaching positions and playing positions, whatever. And and I felt like good things were happening. But then I walked through the door of North Texas and everything changed because when you walk into a studio with 140 percussionists and 17 teachers, it's not about how we're going to teach the rudiments here. You know, we're going to we have to talk about, you know, really what's the full scope that we want our students to have after four years and what what we give them, we feel is is really different. I mean, we they get a different kind of experience at North Texas than they would at most state schools or even private schools probably. Why? Because of the diversity and, and the size. A lot of people talk about North Texas as its size being a problem, but we see the size as a huge asset because we can run from one project to the next and uh, with different groups of students and, and be successful with it. So what overwhelmed me? Um, I would first off, I think in any job, Pete, the first year is always the worst. I don't, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I've never heard anybody going, oh, my first year was just so awesome. Yeah. yeah. I feel the first year is always 
you know, difficult transitions. You have to understand the administration and finding just the, finding the buildings, you know, just knowing where to go and, yeah. and things. I think what overwhelmed me the most was dealing with this issue of trying to bring everybody into one one uh, one group, one group, the jazz people, the marimbas, the marching guys, the, the steel drums, the, you know, the African ensemble, just everybody being together, moving together, uh, although at different steps, of course, because of their different uh, expertises. But the um, that was a real challenge, to be honest, just how to communicate. And we were kind of on the verge of being able to communicate digitally better but it was really an email driven world in 99 and um that and i mean i'm i'm putting up posters on the bulletin board i mean to tell people what's going on and so um yeah just just this dealing learning higher communication skills was probably the thing that really i suffered with and you know Pete also every school has a culture i wanted our culture to be funded, uh, you know, foundational with uh, integrity and with with great music. But I felt like we were off balance when I first came in here. And um, not so much in the need to want, want to be great musicians or those kinds of things, but more about just where we were putting our time. It just seemed off balance. So we we slowly were able to, to balance over the next two or three years and that's kind of been our mainstay in the last 25, you know. Uh, my second year here, Christopher Dean, uh, Ron Fink retired and Christopher Dean took the position and he was a dear friend and we had taught in North Carolina together and had played on the stage many, many times together. So all of a sudden, you know, our team became closer but just because of that too. That helped a lot. With the range of so many teachers how do things get organized in terms of what a student, who they get to teach, who they get to learn from and kind of if there's an order or, you know, like how your teaching load might differ from what Chris's was or, you know, like what kinds of things. Well, play it's there? a lottery. It's a, we just pull ball. No, no. <laughs> the, um, for example, if you think about Paul Rennick, I mean, who's been more successful in his field than Paul Rennick? I mean, you know, he is, He's on the top of the DCI ladder, you know, completely and such a great teacher and a great player. And so every we have a lot of students, Pete, that come to North Texas because they want to be in our drum line. They want to work with Paul Rennick. They, of course, they want to eventually get into Santa Clara or whatever time, whatever uh, core Paul was working with at the time. Most of it's been Santa Clara or Phantom uh, since I've been here. But nevertheless, you know, so we have to balance that out. Now, one way we do that is everybody takes two lessons a week. So they might take a lesson with me and a lesson with Paul in the in a first semester or second, whatever. And then they may move and they may take lessons with Jose Aponte. And then they're taking uh, vibe jazz vibes with Ed Smith, you know. So there is a structure. Um, there is, like most schools, we have an upper division exam for like all the winds and percussion and strings that at the, at the end of their sophomore year, they have to play uh, a special jury, if you will. Like and, the barrier kind of thing. Right? Yeah, exactly. To let them go on to their junior, senior year. Well, in percussion, Bob Shatoma had started this years before that he just broke it up over the semester. So we could, could really have a better um, educational 
progress on how each student is doing as opposed to putting it all into one jury, you know. So that kind of helps us so much because we don't have to do that in percussion at North Texas. We do not have to do that sophomore exam. We do it really a little bit every semester. So if they're studying snare drum with Paul, for example, and they're studying marimba with Sandy Rennick, then they're going to play the marimba uh, barriers and the snare drum barriers for that level, whatever level they're on. If they pass, they go to the next level and they can go to new teachers. And um, to answer your other question, who do they get to study with? I I ask them, I want to give them to the teacher that they prefer. I do, I do my best to try to, but as you can tell, that's just clearly impossible. You know, Quincy Davis is here, you know, uh, teaching drum set, just an incredible artist. And everybody wants to study with Quincy. Well, that's just not going to happen, you know, or uh, everybody wants to study with Dave Hall. That's just not going to happen. So we just have to find a way that we can progress it. But you might say that, okay, we can't do that this semester, but next semester you're in or that kind of thing. It's not perfect for certain. I don't, I don't know about your world, but education, higher education is not perfect. And uh, we try to, we, when we do screw up, we try to acknowledge it and try to find the best way to avoid it in the future. But we're going to screw up from time to time. But student um, placing students with the right teacher is super important. And that's why we, we have a strong team. We have 11 teachers that are teaching that are on faculty and six more that are uh, graduate teaching assistants. And so we really spend a lot of time making sure we've got the right people in the right position to help. Well, and, and on the, that was, you were leading to my next question about graduate teaching assistants. What, what tends to be the range of responsibilities that they have to do? They, they're, they're, they are different. There are six of them and they don't all do exactly the same thing. Um, we usually have two to four uh, percussion methods courses for music ed classes, like most universities, of course, <clears throat> they will teach those uh, which are now coordinated by a new faculty member. Uh, I'm so um, happy and honored to have him on our faculty. Michael Crawford has been doing this now for two years, and he's on the music ed faculty. He's a percussionist, really fine percussionist, but he's on the music ed faculty, but he's also coordinating our percussion methods class. So he understands what these what these students have to have to know. In the past, I was over, overseeing it, but I couldn't teach those classes. I didn't have time in my load to actually teach them. So Michael usually teaches one course, and then the others are done by TA, so he can help guide them in a really beautiful and professional manner. So those TAs do that. They teach, they teach lessons typically to freshmen, um, some, sometimes some sophomores, and they might be, for example, uh, mainly they only teach snare drum one and marimba one mainly. Now, they <clears throat> a few students will end up taking like a marimba second level with uh, a TA, uh, but there's usually a reason for that, why we want to do that, or they're like super fantastic snare drummers, so they're with Paul Rennick, for example, but their mallets still need some help, so we're going to put them with a, a doctoral candidate and make that work. So it varies, you know. And this doesn't include the drumline person? Well, or is there a drumline GTA or no? There is a drum, drumline GTA. Uh, this uh, this year, it's Bryce Turner. He's a new DMA candidate for us. Not always, but often uh, the students that are the uh, 
GAs for the marching band and percussion have have worked with Paul in DCI. You know, they have some experience there with him because we we want to teach a culture, we want to teach a style, uh, tone production. Um, we tend to talk about marching percussion in the same way we would talk about concert percussion. We try not to have two different kinds of techniques. Paul is uh, very strong with this, as well as Sandy. And um, Lauren Teal's been working with our pit in the um, in our camps. She doesn't, she has done it before. She's taught during the semester, but typically it's just in the camps right now. And um, so we we just have a better and better uh, funnel of information going to these students that's consistent from year to year. So one year students don't hear this thing, and then they hear some other approach. In another year, we're trying to like always. That doesn't mean we may not. Um, we're going to progress, of course, we may have new ideas and want to implement them, but we're trying to make it smooth and fluid for the students so they know what to anticipate. Now, how do the large ensemble needs fit in? <laughs> well, there's a lot of large ensembles here, and they, um, I'm telling you, the um, artistry of these large ensembles with Eugene Corporon uh, doing the Wind Symphony and Andy Traxel. Uh, doing the concert, uh, the Wind Orchestra. It's a new name. We used to call it Symphonic Band, but now it's Wind Orchestra. And the orchestra is in the lab. The jazz here is world-class, as yeah, you yeah. probably know. So we have all these incredible people to work with. And you know what? They want to choose the best player for their ensemble. What a surprise. I mean, that's just natural. So we tend to go through uh, next week. We, we'll start this process here for this year. We'll go through round one, which will take two days to do round one of all the wind studies and orchestra auditions. And then the students will be placed into two groups and then they'll go to round two. Uh, group A would be for the top two groups. Uh, and then uh, the group B would be for the lower, lower. I shouldn't say lower bands. They're still great bands, but they're just typically younger, less experienced. And the directors are in those auditions at round two. Round one is just percussion faculty. And it's our job to, you know, put them in the right the right group. Now, jazz will do the similar kind of thing where the jazz faculty will, will listen to the drummers. And then at the end, the directors of the bands are going to say, you know, the Alan Baylock, the director for the One O'Clock Lab Band, is going to have a say on who's drumming in his group. I mean, obviously, he's not going to, he, he'll take our advice, uh, but he's going to want to make the choice, in which he should. Yeah. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> on the flip side, then how do end of the semester juries happen with so many majors? <laughs> What's that like? The, it's uh, it's basically two weeks of the year that you can't do anything but jury. <laughs> yeah. we, we, we will, because every student takes two lessons and we're running, it's not quite as big as it used to be, which is a good thing. It's around averaging around 130-ish in the falls and in the spring will be 120, 115. Um, and that's normal. I think most schools are slightly smaller in the spring. But when you're dealing with 130 students all taking two juries apiece, so you easily to see that we're looking at about 260 juries in one week. And it is, I mean, Pete, we will start at 8.30 in the morning and go till seven o'clock at night. And we're, we're doing it for typically for five days. And so it's just like, go, 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 go. Now, the in the my first 
a couple of years here, I really wanted to know every student. I just needed to understand. So I would I scheduled myself for every jury. And I made the critical era my first year. It was like, okay, we'll do all the snare drums on this day. Okay, so and then we'll do all the, the timpani on these days. You know, what a mistake. Oh, man. I mean, when you're in your sixth hour of snare drum juries, you're like, okay, you know, it's a lot of snare drum. You know, let's take a break. So, so basically, we we're kind of overlapping things. And um, after about the, my second or third year here with Paul and Chris at that time and and Bob Shutroma was still teaching one day a week and all. So we would start to tag team. So one person didn't have to sit all the time because it's just too much. I mean, you just get overwhelmed with it. And um, even though the musicians, the students are awesome, and we re we clearly recognize that the student that's playing at 3 p.m. deserves the same attention we would give somebody at 9 a.m. in the morning. You know, the teachers, students who are playing that jury, that teacher is in charge of that session if you can imagine. Now there's usually two other, sometimes three other people that are listening to those juries, but that teacher, whoever those students are studying with, that they're the ones in charge at that time, you know, to make sure that everything gets covered. And, uh, you know, as you, like at your school, I'm sure the juries go by pretty quick for each student. It's not like they're in there for 30 minutes each or so, typically about 12 minutes or so. With your position, has that meant... I'm going to kind of transition into your composition portion because that, I mean, I, from my recollection was that was a, and maybe it still is, but it was a major part of your career in terms of, in terms of output and, and how much you were doing. I, I, has that switched or are you just not, I'm just curious, like, tell me a little bit more about your path there. He, um, I thank you. Thank you so much for, for bringing this up in that way. I, I um, uh, my music is um, I never, I didn't have any background studying as a composer, but I, when I got out of school, I was teaching at uh, middle Tennessee state um, university and the students were, I wanted them to play, you know, like classic young teacher. I wanted them to play this great music, but they didn't have the skills to play that great music. Mm -hmm. And so I had to kind of, pull things back but it my especially my first year or two there they were they were you know struggling and so I wanted them to play better music so I would take the the tune that I wanted them to play and I would rearrange it now this is before finale and Sibelius so I'm writing this stuff out on manuscript and writing parts and and giving them I learned a lot by just looking at a lot of scores by a lot of really good composers and I didn't sacrifice any of the musical integrity of their pieces, of course. I just made it so my students could could deliver that music in a in an easier way. And they grew from it, and I grew from it. So to make the long story short, I wrote a piece for them called Head Talk. And um <laughs> <They> played it. <laughs> you know, I just kind of a crazy, crazy situation. I had a, a closet full of drum heads there at Middle Tennessee because we had no money. And I thought someday I'm going to need some of these used drum heads. And that crisis never happened. And so I was driving to a gig in Nashville. I'm like, oh, I think I'll write a piece for drum heads. You know, so one night I just thought about it for a couple of weeks and then just sat down and wrote it all out in one one night and then let these guys play it. And um you know, they had so much fun with it. I'm like, well, wow, okay, well, this this is going to be fun, you know. So I did that, and then I wrote Stubernick, like, right behind it. I wrote these two tunes, like, almost in the same year. 
And Pete, I was sending this music out to publishers thinking, oh, wow, these pieces are going to be, I can, I can get a contract with a publisher or something. But nobody would publish them. They all said, nobody will play these tunes. And, uh, and I was like, well, I just didn't believe kind it. I kind of think that they will, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, those two. Well, wait, wait, wait. So wait, were these group, were these publishers, we're not going to mention anything by name. No. But they, were they, um, were they publishing percussion music or you just oh, yeah. then? Okay. Yeah. So you were, yeah. these were, were at the time, them. these yeah. were really standard, uh, well-known um, percussion publishers. And I was, I was a nobody, you know, I just new teacher. And um, so, but I was sending them out and I sent them VHS tapes so mm-hmm. they could yeah. see the piece, you know? Mm-hmm. And um and so I just, they were very kind, but they were like, I'm sorry, but no one's going to want to beat on the side of their marimba or or sit on the floor because they won't know what to do because you're not there to show them. But I had done the in- instructions, I thought, pretty clearly. So long story short, Pete, is uh, I'm not knowing this is not your question. I told Eric Johnson, who is a former student of mine, and we had started Innovative Percussion together. I'm like, we should do a publishing company because I can't get anybody to publish my music. So we started to distribute my tunes and and Chris's music and other friends of ours, you know, through Innovative and it grew and grew. So that helped my situation a lot. To answer your question, I'm 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 writing all the time. Okay. I just, I, I, it's like, uh, I can't stop Pete because it's who I am. It's part of, you know, and even when I'm like, no, I don't, I don't have the energy to do that now. I'll hear something and I'll go, oh, I've got to write that down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right now I'm actually um, arranging my new concerto for Marimba that we just premiered in Melbourne, Australia last, uh, oh, maybe 10 months ago. And um, we're going to do the orchestral version of it in uh in poland in uh, october this october and i'm finishing finishing that up i promised paul rennick that we would write a uh, a new duo to follow up renfro i don't know if you're familiar with renfro but it's a f- super fun marimba snare drum duet and, and it was ren for rennick and fro for ford so the next one's going to be foreign for and ren you know um, that's all I have. I have the title. <laughs> but, you know, I keep thinking about things that we could play and do. And, and he's busy guy and I am too. So we just haven't put that together. But I've got these things coming up in my head. I've got a two mallet book that I have sketched out. I just got to finish it up. You know how it is. So it's for me, it's you're teaching and you're playing. And it's hard for me to be a performer and a composer at the same time. I just... Mm-hmm. Not good at that. I can't do that. So when I'm composing, it's usually summer times or break times when I'm not having to be playing a lot. Or yeah. if I'm playing, then I I just need to focus on that music and try to make it as good as I can, of course. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Head Talk because the thing that I mean, you you know about now, maybe maybe I don't know about it when the time, so I want to know more about the process of writing because when I ordered the heads from Steve Weiss, and you probably have students tell you this where like they call, you know, you ask for the first head and Steve was like, are you trying to play head talk? Cause like, apparently that's the only thing that those heads were for. Right. So, so how did, how did you decide on that particular kind of head? Well, it seemed obvious at the time because I wrote it. I didn't write it for these pre-tuned. You're referring to the pre-tuned heads made by Remo. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and head talk calls for uh, there's six of them in this, like there's the bass drum and then five each 
each each of the players has a smaller head. And uh, at the time, Pete, Remo had come out with a big project of like um, drum sets. They were making uh, drum sets that you you didn't have to tune the, the heads. You just popped on these pre-tuned heads and they sounded good. They really sounded pretty good. And the drums were super lightweight. And so like if you were gigging and, and you had to throw a second kit up really quick, this was really a nice alternative. Well, they had those drums for I don't, I don't know how many years but eventually they just didn't really sell the quantity that they needed to sell and they discontinued the the drums but they didn't con- discontinue the heads because a head talk head talk kept these heads going you know i think they just i mean i'm, I'm sad to tell you this I, I think they just literally a half a year ago not very long ago that they said okay we're not going to make any more pre-tuned heads and it's 2023 i wrote this tune in 87 you know so it's like what you know there's still lots of those heads floating around but the um and uh, but you're right eventually steve put that steve weiss put those heads in a package you mm-hmm. know he so didn't have to do what you were saying one head one head one head just you yeah, want yeah, the yeah. Package? okay you know uh that's hilarious do you notice anything okay aside from the fact that you're writing music and you and it's kind of just a part of you and, and you know and it's that could be habit that could be any number of reasons is there anything that you notice now about yourself as a composer that's different in, in either inspiration or, you know, growth in, in ways that you may not expect? Pete, that's a really powerful question. And um, the thing I can tell you is that I think the spiritual side of, of writing music and trying to connect feelings with sound. In my younger days, I was the bull in the china shop. And I was just have an idea and just throw it all out there and and then tweak it and go. And I feel like every composer I know that is successful deals with this issue. And it's difficult and probably different for every individual. But this is something I'm much more and more aware of, of like having the inspiration, the right inspiration, and then having the ability to tell myself that this is crap. You know, you shouldn't shouldn't use this. This is really not good. You know, good idea, but not. You know, the delivery is wrong. I'm I'm better at editing now, mm-hmm. uh, for certain. I think I'm stronger with my um, use of harmonic color and shifts. I I've tried to learn from these amazing composers that I'm around here at North Texas, but also uh, great friends like Jack Stamp. Uh, has helped me so much is as a player and as as a performer you have to be able to take criticism and this was this is difficult for a young person they don't want to feel like oh no I know what I'm doing you know but but in reality people like Jack or or whoever in their lives that are leading figures in playing percussion or music in general when they criticize you, they're not doing it personally. They're basically saying, hey, this is what I hear. Is this what you want? Is this really what you want? I'm really a lot better at taking criticism. And I'm also really more comfortable asking for help. No, wait. wait. So when you when you say taking criticism, you mean like internally, like realizing that it's, you're not taking it personally, that yeah. it's, it's just like it's, this is to improve what I'm doing. Well, Pete, you know, I think if you go to your friends 
and you say, hey, man, what do you think of this? I just wrote this. What do you think? And you want them to go, hey, that's awesome, man. Love it. That's great. And if they go, ah, I don't know about this. Why, why would you do, you know, I'll give you a good example because I remember it so clearly because you just asked this question. And I was sitting with Jack Stapp at the time I was writing my, this Stubernick fantasy, which is a concerto with using Stubernick and Aftastuba together. And, um, and I'm sharing my, I don't know, second or third draft of it with Jack. And he's listening and he stops and he looks at me and he goes, Mark. I'm like, Jack. And he's like, Mark. Jack, but you know, and he's like, Mark, this is boring. And man, I mean, like fireworks went off because I'm that's exactly what I needed to hear. You know, I hear something I had invested in, and he's going, This is boring, you know. And I mean, I immediately ripped it up, you know, I'm saying after I got out of the office, but you need friends that can speak honestly to you or people, and they maybe they're not friends, but you need professionals that can speak honestly to you, and you got to think about that you know, is this my voice? You know, this is my my vision, but how can I use this information? You know, that kind of thing. So I think I'm, I'm better at that point of it. Uh, I think the concerto, when you, I don't know if you've heard that, there's, there's I need to put the whole video up on my uh, YouTube channel. There's, there's a composite, there's about eight minutes of a collection of it right now. It's a 22 minute piece. So it's, when you hear that, I feel like, wow, okay. And you compare that to, what I was doing in Stubernick or Polaris or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just for me, I felt like I've grown a lot going through that. Doesn't mean I don't love those other compositions. I do, but you know, we, we tend to grow, we, we should grow in music. Right. So. Uh, switch over to PAS since you were um, past president. Uh, what was the, what made you decide that to go in that path at that point? Man, there was no decision. I mean, it was like they, I I got involved writing reviews for new music. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, Jim Lambert was the editor uh, mm -hmm. at Cameron University, just such a dear friend and um, great teacher. Anyway, and he said, Mark, would you start, would you like to do some uh, reviews? I'm like, absolutely. And what a great gift. I mean, because as a new teacher, I was like in my first or second year teaching you know, the PAS would send me some music that I got to keep. I just had to write the review. And in writing the reviews, you know, I started to make connections with those composers and, and people. And a lot of them were involved with PAS already. So I started to do that. I got involved with the education committee and some other committees. They asked me, would you like to uh, be on the ballot for the executive committee? You know, and I was just like, you know, what? You know, OK. So, I mean, it really wasn't a decision to make. I didn't I never even thought about not doing it because I love that organization. I love the people in that organization and the things that it offers our students. Because the reason you and I and many others are involved in that organization is uh, do we get personal benefit? Yes. But really what we get the most of is that we're able to create better opportunities for our students than we had. I mean, and that that's the key, you know, to build, to create, keep building in that manner. And that was really the driving goal for me and me still as a teacher, you know? And so it really wasn't any question of like, Oh, maybe I will do that. No, it was, I was going to go do it. Whatever they wanted me to do, I wanted to help. And it was so fulfilling. And I worked with so many 
uh, incredible people. And it wasn't always easy, Pete. Don't just because it was fantastic doesn't mean it was always happy. I mean, there was arguments, there was uh, differences of opinion that in a professional world, you just have to work it out and come up with a solution that makes sense. You know, I was serving as president of PAS at the time when we um, had to make the hard decision to leave Lawton, Oklahoma and go to another host city, you know. And so and what uh, years were these that you were okay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I should know this. I 2002 to 2004. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So around 2003, I was putting together uh, with um, uh, Michael Kenyon, who was the executive director at the time, Rich Holly, and all these uh, Jim Campbell, all these dear friends that were on the committee at the same time. We created a, a fund to be able to start exploring other cities. And of course, that continued into Rich Holly's uh, term as president. Yeah, he but talked about the that was a, also not a not a, it was a challenging oh. <laughs> situation. Well, you know, you you know, you make decisions that are affecting real people, and they're not just people you don't know; they're people you know really well. And yeah. and it's um, not easy. There's got to be a good reason why you would do something like that. And we felt like we had the right reason. We needed to to grow beyond that. Uh, and we had grown so much in Lawton, but then we were starting to become limited because of, mainly because of geography. That was really the only the only real issue. Moving to Indy uh, was or a city like that. And clearly, Indianapolis has been a big plus for us uh, to help the organization be more stable not just financially, but also to be more diverse in their offerings. So, so it's been a good thing. Yeah, but those that's a good example. There's another one. I'll tell you this one because people don't probably remember this, but I got a call one day and it was in summer. It must have been in the summer of 2003 or something, but ESPN had put out an ad in USA Today, which was at that time, like everywhere, you know, this was a, like a national newspaper. Right. And they said, you know, do something constructive for your kids this summer. Don't give them drum lessons, give them golf lessons. And they, it was an advertisement for golf. So I got Michael um, Kenyon on the phone and he's like, he goes, this is a, this is silly. We're not going to just let this go. And I'm like, no, man, this, this should be our moment to stand up and go, what are you talking about? Come on. You know? So I wrote ESPN and challenged them on this and that we were offended and we needed an apology. And I, and we contacted all the major news organizations and NPR ended up uh, interviewing me and a representative from ESPN. And uh, basically they called it the, uh, the jocks versus the drummers, you know, and the, uh, but really it was just a bad marketing scheme and they, they apologized. And, uh, but you know, what happened with this Pete is that, because it went on NPR, because we had, it was the beginning of people being able to post on on a, on a webpage ideas yeah. and, and comments. It just kind of blew up at the moment. You know, PS had never been in a, in a high visibility mode like that. While the, the actual conflict was silly, I agree. I mean, it was really kind of silly. The result was that we... We had growth from that, mainly because we stood up for our, who we are, our integrity of our art. And um, so anyway, and that was some crazy, crazy 
few weeks, I can tell you that. Pretty nutty, nutty time. But really turned out to be really well. Yeah. <laughs> um, as uh, as president, are there, um, you're probably not allowed to divulge this information. Are there golden drumsticks? Is there a, a robe? Is there like a special rudiment that's created just for the president's play? <laughs> I still have these confidential documents at my home. I just want you to know that. No, no, I'm a bad joke. You could probably edit that one out. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, I think every PAS president would tell you the same thing, although we all deal with it with our own personality and our own background is that we, I have, I've just, I've known all these presidents, you know, we all walk the same walk. We have the same challenge to bring everybody together. And this helped me so much with my experience at North Texas how to do that and then how to do it on a global level with, with PAS. And at that time, we instigated um, a thing called the PAS Advantage. And because we were assuming that every teacher of percussion in the United States was a member of PAS, which was completely untrue. Uh, there's, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's it's staggering, you know, at that time. And so we wrote, I, I had a PAS, we wrote a letter, sent a flyer, we developed a flyer. We sent it to every percussion teacher, every teacher that was listed uh, through uh, NASM. And I think we got it in the main list was NASM, a NASM list. But anyway, we we had all this information and our, what, lo and behold, membership went up, okay? So, you know, people just need to be reminded of what the right thing to do is, you know, sometimes. And I think for us that there's no golden, <laughs> you know, there's, I don't know. I, the best things about it, Pete, are the people, to be honest with you. I mean, that's, that is uh, life changing. And now there's uh, brothers and sisters that I see only once a year, once every two years sometimes, but I see them and we're immediately back where we were, you know what I'm saying, friendship wise, because of those connections and those years of service. And uh, anybody that, that, feels like they have it in their heart to do that kind of work, I can tell you it's fulfilling um, with any organization that you feel a connection with. But if you're a percussionist, then it's got to be PAS, I think, you know. All right. Well, let's back up, Mark. You you, uh, you said you grew up in Virginia. And did you, just outside of Richmond, and did you have any family members in the arts? I do. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, right outside of Richmond, Virginia, went to a fantastic high school, Hermitage High School, and the director was Clyde Hughes, uh, just amazing person and great uh, band director and teacher. And and um, my sister, who was five years older than me, Spence, her name is Spence, uh, she was a dancer, and she's not like any dancer. She is like a fantastic dancer. And she ended up dancing on Broadway, uh, doing musical theater over 20 years. And uh, just what a career. And then taught dance at Penn State. And she moved back to New York and was teaching there again. And now she's retired. That, having uh, my sister uh, in my life as of being five years younger and going to the uh, the um, the dance studios and going to in at that time, Pete, this in Richmond, the she was in the Richmond Ballet. They did productions with a live orchestra. They did it with the Richmond Symphony. So I wasn't just listening to recordings. I could go and sit in the pit and watch the musicians, you know, and they asked me as a young age, I'm probably around six or seven. 
they were like, hey, would you know, we need a boy to walk on stage. In the beginning, it was just miming things. They needed some, they needed a boy to be there. You know, as you might guess, you know, it's mostly female and with some guys. So, um, you know, at first I was like, no. And then my mom talked to me and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll give this a go. And you know what? It was a lot of fun. And I, I learned a lot, but I found myself sitting in the pit whenever the orchestra was there while watching the, um, the, um, the musicians and just those experiences and going to theater and, uh, seeing my sister's shows, of course, you know, just really have a big impact. And I think we forget about that with nowadays with parents and, you know, these videos that are so present in our children's lives is that really being in the theater and seeing something live is not the same as watching a video. You know, you've got to like get up and be there somehow. And um, sometimes those things are expensive. I get it. But sometimes they're not, you know, it's just more, better, but more of the effort. And if you want to hear great music, yes, recordings are a huge asset. But really being there live is just there's just no substitution for that experience for that feeling to feel the audience join the performer on stage it's just impressive as you know that's that's why you're in this business you know and the people around you in this case for me my sister my mother you know when I told her I said I want to play drums she's like well if you're going to play drums you have to take lessons I'm like what are lessons I'll take you know I'll take lessons and she called the guy from the symphony and I was studying with the tempanist for the Richmond Symphony as a fifth grader learning snare drum, you know. And wow, I was just I had a really great start, all I can tell you. And so you got to find your path and you're not going to find it. You can get inspiration probably from the videos that we watch on YouTube or whatever, but it's never going to be the same. You can't network on YouTube like, like you can in person, I don't think. Um, you can do that, of course, on social media, but wow, you just really need to to get out there and be there with people, with musicians, with actors, with dancers, you know, to feel it. Well, also, I mean, it's, you didn't have another option at that. No, point. no, there's no way. It's like that. Or, you know, I love the the things that my students come and show me, Pete. I mean, you probably deal with this too. You know, like they'll, they'll come in. I'm like, we want to, I want to, I'm interested in this piece. I'm like, well, where'd you find that? Oh, it's on YouTube. And they send me the link and I'm like, well, this is fantastic. You know, right on. Let's go. To share the music now is so easy as compared to uh, in the days of when I was in college, man, we had to wait for percussive notes to come out so we could read the reviews to see what might be good that we can then order and we might waste 40 bucks because we get a piece of music and we don't like it at all. We had, can't really hear it, you know, so this is really such a, for the arts, such a huge progress, amazing availability to share music that way, sure. I don't want to take that anything away from that. I just want to also make sure for any young person listening to this, that they also have to get up and go out and sit in the, in the audience or the theater to see things live, you know, super important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. When you're growing up, do, is there a big marching component? There were marching bands everywhere. I, you know, I, my high school in Virginia, there wasn't like a core style marching that was kind of right in the beginning of the stage you know I'm and we were playing drums um that looked like what we were what this what contemporary um core style bands are playing now but they were bigger they were slightly bigger of course they had the the mylar heads uh there was still a huge emphasis on rudiments and things in marching band for football games pageants uh you know pageantry and also for competitions 
was a big deal. So we were doing that, and but it wasn't like my students now who are playing in uh, Santa Clara or the Troopers or something, and just the chops, you know, that were required. Just we didn't, we had never seen anything like that before. And and drum corps wasn't big in Virginia. It's probably it doesn't seem to be really big there right now. But I'm sure students now come from all over. It used to be more regionalized. You know, the the people that would play in Phantom, for example, would come from. Illinois area, you know, that kind of thing. Now people come from all over the place to, they don't come just from South, uh, Southern California to be in Santa Clara. They're, they're coming from all over the country. Um, so the answer is the question is, did it inspire me? Yes, because I loved, I loved being on the field. I loved to perform in any way. Ended up being a drum major, both in uh, my senior year at high school and also in college at East Carolina. They had a killer band with a great director named Tom Goolsby, who's just really also changed my life. But the, um, you know, feeling that energy and motion of marching. Now, once I was in college, I became more aware of Spirit of Atlanta, for example, and some of my friends were playing in spirit because they were they lived in the Atlanta area. And uh, so and I started to see drum corps for the first time in college, you know. So, but I never marched in, um, never marched in a drum corps. You know, but I've I, I uh, and I've known teachers that say, oh, no, if you don't march in a drum corps, then you can't be in the studio. But that's thank goodness that seems to have changed, you know, that because uh, not I wouldn't say that it's 100 percent. But the students that march drum corps, they're not just um, technique. You know, they have discipline. They have patience. They have uh, a goal that they know that if I spend this time working here, I'm going to get to this point at some stage. So I love working with those guys. Uh, and, uh, and of course, at North Texas, we have the drum line and that we, you know, utilized numerous occasions for different performances. And in fact, we have one really big one coming up, Pete, in October uh, of this year, 2023, UNT Percussion is going to be playing a tour of Poland. And one of our primary spots is playing the main uh, U.S. military base, uh, Camp Kosciuszko in Poznan. And I, I was there this summer to check things out and, you know, see where we would be and how would it work. And I asked them, I said, so what other universities or schools from the States have come over to play for the troops? He's like, nobody. It just hasn't happened since the war in the Ukraine, especially. So we feel like it's an honor and a privilege to go do that. And who's going to be the centerpiece of this is this marching percussion that we do so well here. So we're not going to only do that, but we're going to mix it up. We're going to play some jazz, of course, some classical music, and then have the marching involved as well, too. So pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. When you were growing up, aside from all the percussion things, were you doing uh, any sports or student government or church related or uh, athletes or anything else that was kind of like fulfilling your uh, time? I never did sports. I, I played little league baseball, but they would put me in when we were up 20 or down 20. You know, I was, <laughs> was really not not one of the best guys on the team. But you know what? I, I, I did it for several years. I really enjoyed it. You know, I wasn't very good at it. In high school, it was difficult at that time at my school to do ath uh, athletics and to do band. Now, I did do track, uh, track and field, and enjoyed that, you know, being a runner and that kind of business. 
things that took up my mind. I played I played drum set in a rock band. We we rehearsed as much as we could and go. I mean, if anybody would give us fifty bucks, we'd go and play. I mean, fifty bucks for the whole band. You know, we yeah, of course, right, yeah, yeah, I know. And um, <laughs> or if they gave us a pizza, either one of those two things. Would be <laughs> yeah. good. And the um, you know, I was doing these kinds of things, but I was kind of a, a normal. I feel like you know my. Childhood was pretty normal. I was I'd go fishing with my friends sometimes, or we'd play football in the, you know, in the empty lot next door, you know, that kind of thing. We were outside moving and grooving all the time. But for me, I was always involved with some kinds of drumming, you know, just because that's where my heart was, you know. Yeah. Was did your band play originals or was it a cover band? We did mostly cover band. We did a lot of rock, mostly a lot of rock and roll, but we also played some uh, some Tower Power. At one point, we it kind of modified into a horn band with keyboard player, and you know, it was super fun. And you know, David Garibaldi is um, what an incredible the drum set player for Tower of Power. And I will never forget the first time I got to meet him. You know, I brought him to North Texas for a clinic, and it was just like, you know, this guy, and he's so amazing. You know, yeah, so yeah. the guy I was learning, you know, off the records. We would do that. We would play some some jazz quasi kinds of things. But, you know, as a drum set player, you take whatever gigs you can get. So I'd play that. If somebody called me for a country gig, I'd play that. Or if it was for jazz, as the older I got, it became more and more jazz. You know, I'd be more more doing a jazz quartet or jazz quintet or something someplace because I enjoyed it. And also, um, you know, it was just good musicians around to play with. So it was and playing the rock thing later in life is just really wasn't where I saw myself going, you know, although it was still kind of fun. Mallets entered the picture in college or before then? I was playing, I played piano uh, as a young person. Not for very long, unfortunately. I wish I had played longer, like most students, you know, they do it for two or three years and like, ah, I had a really great teacher that helped me with keyboards, um, Jeannie Bluford at my high school. She had gone to East Carolina University as a percussionist and ended up being a choir teacher. But anyway, she helped me with timpani and mallets when I started to get serious about it. But really, it was Harold Jones at East Carolina who just um, like my second father. I didn't know how to tell you. He's just like he um, was just a fantastic uh, teacher and musician. I was able to connect with him. I We're still dear friends. He's 85 right now. And we talk Pretty often, he's he's just an incredible person. So anyway, that's where I started to really get into the marimba, you know. And then going into North Texas, uh, it accelerated because Bob Chitroma's concepts of technique was more like what Lee Stevens was doing at the time because Method of Movement had just, just come out. I mean, so I said, well, I'm going to go to New York. I, got, I, I need to know this guy. So I went and studied with him. Uh, one summer it was in his early days of his uh, summer marimba workshop. And uh, at that time, he would just teach lessons for basically two months or two and a half months or whatever, just take one lesson a week. And my sister was dancing on Broadway. So I had a place to stay and I drove all of her neighbors nutty with a marimba, you know, in the in the apartment. That that really set the stage for me to help me build my concepts about what I was doing on the on the instrument. And we'll get to part two with Mark Ford next week. So stay tuned.
This week's rave is the 2022 TV series Origins of Hip Hop, available to stream in various places and currently available on AETV.com to stream for free. All hail your local public library. While I was only partially familiar with this offering until recently, it wasn't until I saw it available on DVD at our local public library in Columbia that I began to watch the series. And I'm glad I did. The central idea of the show is to focus on eight prominent hip-hop artists and have them tell their story with both background information provided in the form of narration by hip-hop legend Nas, who does not have his own episode in this particular set, and includes contributions from journalists, close friends and associates, record executives, and many others tied into the hip-hop scene over the decades. The artists featured on this set were Fat Joe, Ja Rule, Eve, Luther Campbell, Busta Rhymes, Lil Jon, Grandmaster Flash, and Ice-T. Aside from getting a great sense of hip-hop pioneers and an idea of how hip-hop developed in New York City, Southern California, Georgia, and Florida, in these cases, you get a lot of great stories. Some items of note. One, Grandmaster Flash developed a love of electronics and a love of taking things apart and putting them back together at a very young age which allowed him to develop the modern hip-hop turntable. Two, Busta Rhymes grew up with a massive Jamaican reggae musical influence and also, at a young age, got turned on to white rock music, both of which would influence his music and the look of his videos. Three, Eve somehow survived being the only woman that was part of the Rough Riders crew in the late 90s Though, through heavy touring and other strains, ended up taking a long break to focus on her mental health in the early 2000s, and would later pivot into other genres and media, and then eventually acting. And four, and more pertinent to this podcast, Lil John took drum lessons. And it was through that love of percussion that his work first as a well-known producer became heavily drum-influenced. The good news with this series, and this should be no surprise considering this is about hip-hop, is that all those involved who are profiled are fantastic storytellers. So these episodes move quickly, and you are never not entertained. Again, available on streaming, and putting you in touch with a lot of great music and artists over the past 50 years of hip-hop, seek out and watch Origins of Hip-Hop. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes of the podcast at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast, where you can find me, as well as being on Instagram and X now, I guess, at Pete Zambito, or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Mark Ford. Until then.